again, we're beginning to come to the end of the series of lessons. And did you notice what I, notice what I said? I did not say we're coming to the end. I said what? It's always a pedagogic tool. Jan can share this. We are beginning to come to the end. We're beginning to come to the end. And I think by the end of November, which is uh, three or four Sundays, we'll be concluding this series. And we're talking about John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the word only begotten, remember, is from the Greek, which has to do with this person who was born into this world, this man, a man, a child, a little baby, this person who was born into the world is none other than the enfleshment or incarnation of the eternal Son of God. That's who this is. Where the Son of God has taken to himself a real human body and soul. We must make sure we get this. The Son of God has taken to himself a real human body and soul. So where do we see that verse? John 1.14. The word, remember the word logos, is, and is one of the descriptions for the Son of God, correct? The word logos. And the word became flesh. The Greek word is sarx, S-A-R-X. The word became flesh and what? Dwelt or tabernacled. Remember the Old Testament tabernacle. Tabernacled among us. And we, John is writing this as an, as an eyewitness. We beheld his glory. That glory as of the only begotten. The one and only unique, the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That means this, that everything that the Son of God does, he does as a man. He does as a man. Everything the Son of God does, he does through the activities, the thoughts, the attitudes, the desires, the decisions as a man. And why does he do that? Because it was man who sinned against God. Remember in Romans 5, verses 12 to, oh, well, there goes the old brain. What is it? Uh, uh, 19, whatever, right in there, but verse 12 on. Everything he does, he does as a man. Why? Because in one man, sin came into the world. Therefore, in order to redeem his people to his original purpose of Genesis 1.26, the Son of God comes as a man to bear all the consequences of man's sin, having lived the perfect life that Adam was to live to be absolutely, perfectly obedient to God in order to inherit a kingdom, in order to have a people who would fill the earth with the very glory and presence of God, correct? That's what the Bible is all about, the work of God in creating a people and bringing them forth for the purpose 
of fulfilling, um, of filling the earth with his own presence, with the glory of who he is in these people. And so that's what God is doing and will continue to do and will fulfill it in the end. And so in our last lesson, we learn, remember that in Psalm 2, in verse 6, God has installed, installed his king upon Zion. Remember that? I have installed my king. And then in verse 7, what does he say? Today I have what? Begotten you. Today. Now we've talked about the word begotten and so on. So let's look at the word today again. We said this, that the word today, not every time it's used in the Bible because sometimes it's used as a specific day and time, confined to time. But we must remember this, that everything that happens upon the earth is eschatological in nature. Hmm. Everything that happens is eschatological. Do you remember that? What does that mean? Eschatology is the study of what? Last things. But it's not only to be thought of as confined to last things, but hopefully the understanding of eschatology is larger than just what's coming at the end. And let's look at Revelation 21 and 22. And that's eschatology. Eschatology, the emphasis of eschatology is the wrapping up and the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose as last things. Amen? But we also understand that eschatology has to do with and must obviously originate in God's eternal purpose before the foundation of the world. And that eschatological events must occur in time where God's eternal purpose and plan, his mind, his thoughts, his decrees before the creation are then put into motion or into a time reality. So they begin to happen in a time frame on this day that happened, on that day that happened, the other day that happened, and so on. How many of you know Bay? Bay, raise your hand. B, raise your hand. Everybody knows you. Come on, raise your hand. That's okay. She sneaked in on me on my blind side. That's who that is. And so everything that happens in time is essentially what? An event of eschatology. Do we see that? Everything that happens in time originated where? Before time, and everything that happens in time has its final result and fruition when? At the end of this kind of time, do we see that? So the word today encapsulates that. And so we saw last week that the word today is a day that signifies that Yahweh has installed his king over his eternal kingdom. And it is to be understood as an eschatological term. So let's talk about the word today. Just trying to, wanting to broaden our understanding of events of history, of our understanding, hopefully, as we look at the width and breadth of the word of God and see the, the all-encompassing, comprehensive scope of the word of God. So this word today, it is the day when God's eternal purpose and his eternal result are united in time in the installation of this king upon his throne. Do we see that? The word today 
when God says today, I have begotten you, we're talking about a moment in time when God has gathered his eternal purpose in creation and all those events that have led up to it and his eternal result of that gathered it all in together in the installation of this one of this son as the king. He is the embodiment of God's eternal purpose and fulfillment of that purpose for his people in humanity as a man. It is the day when God fulfills his purpose to rule over all the earth through the last Adam. This king, this son is installed as king in fulfillment of what God, why God created Adam. You remember in Adam, I'm sorry, in Genesis 126, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And what? Let them what? Rule. Do you remember that in verse 26? Let them rule over the crawling things and the things in the sea and whatever. But let them rule. Let them have dominion. So God has created Adam for the purpose of setting his own sovereign rule in this man as he will be the representative or the agent of God's glory, of God's rule in a humanity that will cover the earth. And all of this humanity will be obedient to the will of God and the rule of God and the sovereignty of God. That was Adam's. That's why Adam was created. Adam repudiated that in verse six, remember of chapter three, and he ate. And as a result, God will send another Adam, the last Adam, first Corinthians 15, 20, 45. And this last Adam will do what the first Adam failed to do. And he will be keeping God's original mandate. He will fulfill God's original mandate. Do we see how it's all tied together? This day today is a day when the son of man, why do I say son of man? What are the two necessary truths about Jesus identity that must be equally and unitedly in him and functioning at the same time? How many of you know this young man's name? Haddon, that's right. Okay. What are the two? What, 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 are, the, what are they? Totally God and totally man. So let's put it another way. Absolutely right. He is the son of, and he's the son of man. And the reason I change it a little bit because the Bible refers to him as the son of God and it refers to him as the son of man. He's totally God and totally man united. In this man, Jesus Christ. Where am I? Am I? It's the day when the son of man. So when we say the son of man, what must come into your mind? What must come into your mind is the son of man is the title or the human title concerning the person and work of the son of God in his incarnation. Correct. That's what must come into our mind. The day when the son of man is given all authority in heaven and earth to gather God's people into his house. When he is installed as king, that's the day when God the Father gives the son in his role as son of man all authority to rule over heaven and earth and gather his people into his kingdom. So where do we see Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me? Where is that? Is it in your notes as a reference? Matthew 28, verse 
20. I'm sorry, Matthew, what is it now? Yeah, Matthew 20, verse 18. I don't know how we got 28 in there. It is the day, the word today gathers up this day when God put all things in subjection under the feet of the man, Jesus Christ. Why do I put it the man, Jesus Christ? That's a, what? Go ahead. What's this man's name? Edward. Edward. Okay. Why did I say the man, Jesus Christ? What is that a quote from? He was, but what is a quote from? It's a quote from a Bible verse. There's one mediator between man, God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. What? First Timothy 2, 5. Okay. If you ever call Donnie Bourgeois and leave a message, you're going to hear this. And the Bible says, the man, Jesus Christ. And I don't know whether you put first, you do say first Timothy 2, 5. That's part of Donnie Bourgeois's, uh, what do you call it, voice message thing. So, Donnie Bourgeois did not come up with that on his own. He's just quoting the Bible. It is the day, today, when God says today, he's talking about also the day when he put all things in subjection under the feet of the man, Jesus Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church in fulfillment, again, of Genesis one twenty six. Why does God make Jesus the head of the church? Why? He's fulfilling his creative purpose in Genesis one twenty six. Are we beginning to see that everything in the Bible is one thing? Do we see that? Is one thing. In Genesis one one is encapsulated or gathered everything, and in Genesis one twenty six, specifically dash twenty eight, because it kind of fulfills the purpose there and gives the ways, is the purpose of God. And everything else after that, after the sin, is a fulfillment of that purpose, bringing everything back to that original intention that God had in creating in Genesis 1-1, stating it in Genesis 1-26, and then putting it into action in the creation of Adam and Eve, and then reclaiming it after the fall or the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And everything is working backward, if you would. God is working back to his original intention to bring everything back to his eternal purpose as decreed before the foundation of the world. And so, in that today is an enormous fulfillment of what we have been reading from Genesis 3-6 all the way to the end of Malachi and then through all the Gospels. That day, gathers up all of that and fulfills it. And that day then proclaims the outworking of the rest of the New Testament until the end of Revelation as a result of the installation of God's Son as the King, the Son of Man over his kingdom. Now, there were many days that prepared for this day. That's the Old Testament. So I want to talk about just listing a few things that prepared for this day. So when we read, today I have begotten you, we see something of what's gathered into that today. This is not an exhaustive list. It's just a couple of few things that are pertinent to that. Many, many, many more. So when God says, today I have begotten you, what is gathered into that 
today? What has been happening? What has God been doing to prepare for that statement today? Because things had to happen to bring us to this place. Today is the day when the seed of the woman, you remember the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. Today is the day, this is, these are the preparations, when the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, remember, and the son of David is installed as king. This king is the seed of the woman promised in Genesis. This king is the uh, uh, seed of Abraham promised in, also in Genesis. This king is the son of David as promised in Second Samuel. That's who this king is. Today is the day when God's promise in Isaiah 6 and 7, uh, 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 chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 is fulfilled. Does anybody know what Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 says? This is a Christmas season. We're getting close to it, so you should know what Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us, what? A son is born. Why by love? A who? A son. Now, you see, when Isaiah is given that prophecy by the Holy Spirit, he just doesn't mean, hey, you're going to have a little boy. That's not what that means. It does, but it's bigger than that, right? It's bigger than that. Bigger than just, you're going to have a little boy. When God says through Isaiah, a son is born, Joseph, he means whose son and specifically? His own. His own son. A child, I'm sorry, a child is born. He means his own child. Now, look at the next statement. A son is given. Do you notice? And I said it wrong. A son is born. So somebody should have yelled at me. A son is given. He does not say a son is born. A child is born. I said it wrong. But a son is given. He's wanting to differentiate that this child is just not another boy born into the family. But this is a peculiar, one-of-a-kind, unique son. He is given. How many of you have had sons born into your family? How many of you have sons? Steve, did you say, a son was given to me? Or did you say, hey, I had a son. A son was born. We don't speak like that. A son was given. Do we say that? No. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Who is this son? What is so peculiar about this son? What does the rest of Isaiah say? What? And upon his shoulders shall be the government. What is that saying? He's the king of Psalm 2 verse 7, installed his king. He shall be governor, he, uh, and a gov and on, on his how does it say? And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and what else? And his name, his name is that's not Jesus. Hey, that's your name. Your name is Gene. Your name is Linda. Your name, whatever, Lauren. What? It's bigger than that. When he says his name, when the Bible says name, it means his character, his purpose, who he is intrinsically in himself. So this is, just, this is a son who is going to be governor over all the world. And his name shall be called what? Wonderful. Counselor. The what? Mighty God. The what? Everlasting Father. The what? The Prince of Peace. And of the increase 
of his government, there shall be no end. And what's the last part of it? To what? Say it again. I can't hear you. Ah, the throne of David. Where is that from? Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. The throne of David, what? You see, to establish a kingdom. This is a preparation for that day. This is the day when that promise is fulfilled. This is the day when God's suffering servant, you remember in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of God, who would give himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age as crown king. Today is the day when the Lamb of God, remember who said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember John the Baptist? He sees Jesus in John 1, 29. He says, what? Behold, the Lamb of God. How does he know that? Because God the Father I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit had given him a revelation of this. The one on whom the Holy Spirit rests, he's the one. Because John, you remember, knows Jesus. They are first cousins. Today is the day when the Lamb of God destroys all the works of the devil in his exaltation. Today is the day when God's Son is declared to be the firstborn from the dead as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Today is the day when God gives the heavenly man all authority in heaven and earth to begin to build the house of the Lord. Today is the day when God's purpose in Genesis 126 begins to be a reality in the installment of God's son. Some of this may not be in your notes quite this way. Today is the day that guarantees. Today is the day that when God says, today I have begotten you. That day guarantees that we, the people of God, will be gathered into the new heaven and the new earth. Do we see that? When God tells the son, I have installed you as king. Today I have done this. In that installation of the risen son of man. In that installation as king, God guarantees that his people will be gathered together throughout the ages and throughout the world and will become his people in his kingdom for how long? Forever. And once God brings us as members into his kingdom. Once we are made members of the kingdom of God by being born again into the family of God. Amen. Once that happens, once God puts the stamp of son upon each one of us, once God puts the stamp of you are mine upon each one of us in the blood of Jesus, once that happens, we will be there on that day. Amen. Listen, we couldn't do anything to earn our way in. Can you say amen? amen? And by faith, we cannot do anything to, if you would, earn our way out. This is a secured 
kingdom secured in the very blood of the Son of God as manifested at the cross and stamped by God's approval in the resurrection and exaltation of his Son. We are today, if we're born again, kingdom of God people. And we will forever be the kingdom of God's people. Amen? So, don't be flaky on this. You couldn't be good enough to get in. And all the total absolute accumulation of all of our badness and wickedness that we would ever, ever do in our lifetimes. All of it. Accumulate. Every bit of it was put where? Onto the shoulders of this man when he died. So that when he died, all of our wickedness at any time and every time, no matter what it was, is put to death in him as to the penalty and punishment of our sin. So that we are declared forever forgiven. Can you say amen? Amen. This is a secure kingdom. This is what happens on that day when God says today, today I install you as my king. You see, if it weren't for God's people to be installed in the kingdom of God through the coronation of God's son, the son of God would not have come to earth. Amen. And if he would not have come to earth, he would not have created the earth. So I've said this before and you've heard people say it. Sometimes somebody said, well, you know, whew, thank God Jesus came to save us from our sin. We can say amen because, you know, had he not died for us, we'd go to hell forever. Well, that's patently untrue, Andy. If Jesus had not died for us, the world, and, you know, his people, we would go to hell forever. That's not true. What do you mean it's not true? Because had he not died, he would not have created. Because once he created all things, he committed himself to die for the restoration of all things. Can you say amen? Do we see that? God's creative purpose inaugurated in Genesis 1-1. He bound himself irrevocably and forever to keep that commitment through the very death of the one who created us. The word of God, the son of God. Amen. So there's no such thing as Jesus had not died, we might go into hell. If Jesus had not died, we wouldn't even be here. There wouldn't be a creation. You see that, Joe? We wouldn't even be here. There wouldn't even be a creation. Because what God begins and decrees, what does he do? He finishes it. He fulfills it. What God says, he will do. No equivocation in God. Now, I want to go back a little bit right at the end here and look at Colossians 1.18 again. You may have remembered I just said this. I just quoted it. Today is the day when God's son is declared the firstborn from among the dead. The firstborn. Well, look at the word firstborn. The word is prototokos. And it's a very significant word. The reason I'm emphasizing that word at the end of this particular part of it is this. There are groups of religious people. Religious groups, I suppose I should say, that say this, that Jesus was not the eternal son of God. That he was a man and that he died as God's servant, but that God does not have a son. 
that God is a single person being, if you would, and that there is no Son and Holy Spirit. You understand that, right? That the Son of God was not divine. Did we get that? He was a created being. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was a God. They put the privative a in there. It's not in the Greek. It's not in the Greek. It's understood to mean he was God. And so there are religious groups that say, okay, you see, the proof that Jesus was a created being is right there. He was a firstborn. You see, firstborn. Now, the word firstborn, prototokos, is that in your notes, that word, that funny Greek word? It can mean physically born. Mary brought forth her firstborn son and laid him. This is Christmas. We should know these in a major, right? Remember, firstborn son. So the word firstborn, prototokos, can mean the first one in a time frame. You have five sons or five children. You have a firstborn. You, if you have more than one, you have to kind of have somebody who was born first. Do you see? I mean, Gene and I only have one child, so we don't say my, our firstborn child. We say our only child, if you would. Charles, how many do you all have? Four? Three? So you say firstborn, don't you? So it can mean that. But the word prototokos also has a very significant meaning. And it can mean either one of these given the context and not the word itself. Prototokos not only can mean firstborn in a time frame, but also what? In rank, highest in rank, first in rank, first in rank. But you have to look at the context to determine which one it means. You cannot say, well, that, mean, that word means this there because, it, there because in Luke, you know, it says Mary brought for her firstborn son. Therefore, it must mean that. You cannot say that with these words that have two or three different specific and used meanings in the Bible. So I've already said I think Mary firstborn. But it's important to me also to remember that the firstborn son... The firstborn son, the first in time, was the one who inherited the, uh, the, the father's estate. And so when you're talking biblically and the Bible says so-and-so had his firstborn son, typically that means first in time and also first in rank above the other children because he inherited. Remember Esau. Esau was the firstborn son of whom? Isaac. Isaac. Okay, remember Esau, Jacob, and Esau, remember that? Esau was born first. And so as a firstborn son, he had the right of inheritance. So what happens? He's tired one day. He's hungry one day. He's been out hunting. He's, he's just famished. He's going to starve to death. My daughter used to say, Dad, I'm going to starve to death. She never did. <laughs> you have children to say, oh, I'm good. if I don't eat now, I'm or whatever. So, and what happened is, he traded his birthright. Do you remember this? To whom? Jacob. Jacob. Jacob connived and whatever. And Jacob inherited the blessing. Now, God had already said that Jacob would do that, but Jacob put his own hand on it to do it. That doesn't mean that God says, okay, here's how you have to do it. Now, but that was Jacob's way of getting what 
he wanted, but God had already prophesied that Jacob would have the firstborn or the, the rights of firstborn. So it's first in rank. Listen to this in, in Psalm 89, 27. The Lord is saying, I shall make David my firstborn. Now, can firstborn there mean first in physical birth? I mean, David was the son of Jesse. And which son was he? He was the last one. Remember, Samuel went through seven sons. No, no, no. Do you have another one? Yeah, yeah. Well, we have David out there. He's doing what? He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, bring him in. And he's the one whom God said. So David wasn't even the firstborn in a time frame. So it can't mean firstborn in a physical sense. So what does it mean? It means first in rank. How do we know that? Because look at the rest of Psalm, uh, the verse there. What does it say? I will make David firstborn, what? The what? Highest of the kings of the earth. Doesn't it say that? It's a ranking thing. It's a rank, the highest. I'm going to make David my firstborn. It cannot mean firstborn in time because David was not the firstborn in time. By the way, Ron Almond's here last, this week. Remember, last week he had a heart attack. He's back with us. God has restored him, and here he is. Thanks for reminding me about that, Flo. Flo was looking around. I didn't know. No, 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 no. no just seeing your beaming face next to that man, I realized, wait a minute. I see you beaming. I told you last week. Ron wanted to come here last week. I said, no, no, don't do that. And I wasn't worried about him. I was worried about me. You know, if I said something <gasps> loudly and then he collapsed, they're going to blame me for his collapse there. So I couldn't take the chance. Stay home. <laughs> the highest of the kings of the earth. Do you see again? The installed king. I've installed my king. David is the highest of these kings. And it can't mean David himself because this king is a king of an everlasting kingdom. So it is, this is a bigger prophecy than just this man, King David. It goes way beyond who he is. David is a type or a shadow of this king who is to come, who will be what? The highest of all the kings of the earth. And so what is Jesus' title given in Revelation? He is king of kings lord of lords he's highest of all the kings of the earth so let me finish so here's some verses romans eight twenty nine. christ is the firstborn among many brethren now he is the first to return from the dead but he wasn't born he was raised so he wasn't born Kenda Copeland said Jesus was born again. Well, it's ridiculous. He was raised from the dead. And as the first one to be raised from the dead, to be exalted to the Father's right hand as King of kings and Lord of lords, he is the first in rank over all those who were raised in him of many brethren. Colossians 1.15, Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Doesn't mean he's born and created and then. He is higher in rank than all of creation. Why? Because he's the creator. Christ is, in Colossians 1.18, the firstborn from the dead. 
He is the one who is the highest in rank of all of those who were raised from the dead, beginning with his own resurrection, because in his resurrection, all are raised in Christ. Therefore, he's the firstborn, the first in rank. Hebrews 1, 6, Christ is the firstborn, the first in rank over all the angels. Revelation 1, 5, Christ is the firstborn, the first in rank of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So do we see that? So very much just wanted, felt that being led to, to bring together some thoughts about the word today. Next week, we're going to look at verse 8 in Psalm 2. And um, I'm um, sorry. Yeah, Psalm 2, verse 8. And we're going to determine how the insulation of God's king applies to us. God's king was installed upon the throne of God. Primarily for God's benefit, that in that installation, he would have a people of his own glory, of his own pleasing. Amen. The primary purpose of this is not we. You'd say not us, but that's not grammatically correct. The primary purpose of all of this is not who we are. The primary purpose is the glory of God in us. Amen. So I've said this before and I'll close with this. God is the subject. God is the verb. God is the direct object. And we are the indirect object. Amen. So next week, now I'll give you one hint. For next week, you might want to look at Psalm 110. Psalm 110, because that's where we'll be going next week. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at Psalm 110. So thank you so much.